0: Right now, though, we are starting with something that could make for a big change in the township of Langley. The council for that township has voted in favour of a plan that would see it have its own RCMB detachment in a separation that the mayor has said in the past is about costs and making sure the costs are fair. Currently, the township shares the force with the city of Langley, but that could change. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Eric Woodward, the mayor of of the Township of Langley. Mayor Woodward, thanks so much for making the time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: With this vote to go ahead with the plan, does this mean that this is going to happen, that the Township of Langley is now going to be moving in the direction and getting its own standalone detachment?
1: That's correct. So the process will begin now in coordination with uh, the RCMP on the province of British Columbia and the city of Langley for for each municipality to to have its own RCMP detachment and its own officer in charge.
0: Uh, Mentioned the unfair costs being one of the issues. Is that the main issue? And maybe could you explain a little bit more why this is a move that you think would be better for the residents, the taxpayers and the township?
1: Yeah, I know. Council, uh, you know, debated this uh, for the last little while, and it's been under consideration by the township for many years. Uh, we've added 33 RCMP officers over the last 10 or 15 years, and the city of Langley has added one. And uh, we're continuing to grow, and and we're seeing the the reality on the ground that RCMP officers and and staffing resources that our taxpayers are paying for are being deployed in the City of Langley, and it's not being addressed by the City of Langley, and so we feel that this is the right direction to go, so I can provide, and Council can provide, and the Township of Langley can provide uh, better service for our residents and taxpayers throughout the Township of Langley.
0: What is the difference when looking at, uh, for for people not really familiar with the the area and and that. What, what is the difference as far as both geographical and population between the city and the township?
1: Yeah, the township is five times the population and 30 times the geographic size of the city of Langley. So we face a number of different challenges that, uh, you know, the city of Langley doesn't. And we need to see, you know, greater policing resources throughout our community from Alder Grove to Brookswood to Walnut Grove and in our rural areas and, you know, focused on property crime and other issues that we would want them to focus on. And and, uh, a lot of those resources are in the city of Langley. We're we're dealing with rapid growth uh, far beyond the city. And, you know, by 2040, uh, we'll be at about 220,000 and they'll be at about 40,000. So we're very different municipalities growing at very different rates. And feel that this is a direction that we need to go for the long-term future of our community.
0: Have there been times then or incidents that you know of when there has been something happening in the township of Langley that requires an RCMP response and that response has been delayed because RCMP are deployed in the city?
1: No, I'm not aware of any specific incidents. I mean, I think the RCMP are, are very good at, uh, you know, going where the calls for service are required, and especially in the case of an emergency. The the long-term issue isn't related to, you know, the calls for service per unit of population are much, much higher in the city. Uh, investigation quantity per officer load in the city is much, much higher. and And for us to increase service levels and policing, in the township. It's very challenging. We could add more RCMP officers indefinitely, but they continue to be deployed disproportionately in another municipality that isn't staffing up the way we are.
0: What kind of a response have you had from the council and the mayor in the city?
1: Uh, well, we, you know, we've it, you know, talked to him a few times about it. So myself, he and I have met on it uh, right after the election last year and gave him a heads up that we were seriously considering this. And, you know, he, he has said publicly that they have the resources to to create their own detachments, and they're not too concerned about it, and we, we took him at his word.
0: Uh, so they would have a detachment then effectively, like you said, if their population is around 40,000, um, a much smaller
1: detachment. Yeah, well, they're currently at around 27,000. That, that would be their number by 2040, mm. uh, where our population is expected to go much higher. So today, uh, we're five times the population at about 150 to, to 27, 28. And so uh, they are going to have to set up and and have a detachment uh, for their urban core of about 10 square kilometers. And and then I think that ultimately their policing uh, will be better as well. They'll be focused on their issues and uh, their community. And we'll have our detachment focused on ours, just like it is in almost every municipality throughout the province.
0: How does this fit in, do you think, with the bigger issue of policing in the province of BC? Certainly we've been watching what's happening in Surrey, which is not too far from where you are. And and one of the, the arguments made there, if Surrey was to go ahead with a civic force or continue to take that recommendation and, and continue with the civic force, is it's part of the bigger picture and the bigger picture of regional policing. How does this move, do you think, fit into that plan?
1: I don't think it's, I think there's two separate issues entirely. Uh, the, the Township of Langley Council, you know, has made it very clear that uh, we are not considering and have no interest in considering a civic police force. Uh, we are happy with the RCMP and we'll be staying with the RCMP. Uh, the, you know, the, the controversies that are continuing in Surrey uh, really aren't related
0: uh, even though there is that bigger decision, or sorry, that bigger discussion of uh, that we've heard from the the public safety minister, and certainly it was it was part of that review that perhaps the province is moving in the direction of regional policing.
1: Yeah, I mean, if the province is considering that, um, we will wait to get more information about that. In the meantime, uh, we're focused on uh, how we can best serve our residents and taxpayers and, and get them the policing that they're paying for.
0: Uh, Will it change the costs, do you think, at all for taxpayers in the township uh, by breaking free so you're no longer sharing the costs with the city?
1: No, there's very little financial implication for the township of Langley. Uh, We will not have to bear the costs of the deintegration. We will have an asset that we share ownership with in the city that we have the contractual right to terminate, and we'll be proceeding with that process. So once we get through that, and we buy out the city from some capital assets, uh, it will not not impact us whatsoever. And on an operating basis, uh, we'll now have our RCMP officers in our community.
0: Uh, Would it still be called the Langley RCMP, or have you gone that far to to figure out what the the new name would be so people would know the difference that this is now RCMP only for the township, not for both the township and the city of
1: Langley? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about that until this moment. So the name probably seems like the least important thing for me, but... I think it would be pretty obvious we could call it the Township of Langley RCMP.
0: All right. When do you anticipate or what is the hope as far as the timeline?
1: Well, right now, the, the cost-sharing agreement to, to deal with some of the capital sharing is a two-year timeline, and, and that's well laid out in a contractual agreement. So once we get past that, uh, when we initiate that process, uh, we'll be on a two-year timeline. And we've been assured by the RCMP, who oversee this process with the province, that it can be completed uh, this term.
0: This term. So in the two-year timeline, sorry, when does that expire?
1: Uh, well, the two-year term the timeline is, uh, is a cost-sharing agreement that was formed uh, in the 1980s between the city of Langley and the township. And it anticipated at some point that this would be contemplated. And it's very laid out how the capital will be distributed. And, and once we proceed with that, uh, that's a two-year timeline. And then that will run concurrently with the deintegration process.
0: Uh, so, and so you say it could happen within the term, you mean the civic term of this council?
1: That's correct. So we've, you know, we've been talking to the RCMP uh, leading up to this decision about what it would look like as we gathered information to make the decision. And uh, the, the timelines are much shorter than what we've seen in the deintegration between Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge. And we're expecting it to occur faster. That was about a five-year process. So we're expecting this process to be you know, three to four years at most.
0: All right. And just one other question. I know you explained uh, kind of how this is not expected to be a higher cost for residents, for taxpayers. But it seems like whenever there's a big change or whenever there's a shift like this, there are always costs associated. How can you be so sure that this isn't going to have a bigger price tag or this isn't going to cost more?
1: Well, we did all that research with our senior management team uh, before making a decision. Of course, we collect all that information. We get it outlined. And when I was on council last term for four years, we, we spent quite a bit of time um, working on the cost and what that would look like and the process to do it. And it's, it's going to have a one-time capital item that in our grand scheme of our budget is a rounding error and, and we'll move forward with providing better policing for our community. It's not going to have a cost implication uh, significantly to the township.
0: All right. So Mayor Eric Woodward, thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. 1234 on a Wednesday. That means it is time to check in with Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jill. Lots of travel (laughs) news. Most of it not that good to chat about this week. Yeah, there's certainly no shortage. Let's start first, though, before we get to the the not so good news. Passport to online renewals. This seems like a good thing. This is really great. So um Ottawa today unveiled
2: a new passport. It's got a new look which is really great. It has got a whole bunch of updated security features also pretty pretty cool if you read all about them. But what was you know I think the best part of the the announcement was that starting this fall Canadians will be able to apply to renew, not to get new. Um, but to apply to renew their passports online, which means um, you'll be able to upload any necessary documents and passport photos on a secure government website. This is a huge game changer for uh, passports. Just to note, however, though, people who are applying for new passports, including children, they still need to go to the traditional route um, through Service Canada, but this is just This is really great. I think that they're taking all the lessons that they learned from last year when Service Canada was overwhelmed with all those passport applications. Remember, people were sleeping overnight in those long lines and things. So this is unbelievable news. It's really welcome. Uh, I think people will be very excited about this. I know I am.
0: All right. So that's a positive thing that came out today on not such a great news front, the WestJet pilots dispute.
2: Yeah, this is really the kind of the thing that's weighing on the travel industry at the moment here in Canada. And for those who who d- haven't been following it, uh, if you're not holding a ticket on WestJet, you may have not even been paying attention. But right now, the pilots are in a, and, the, and the airline are in a cooling off period. And that is in place until this Saturday, which is the 13th of May. At that point, if there is no agreement in place, the union, can actually, um, they can put a issue, basically, a a 72-hour strike notice. And what that means is that a strike could happen as early as May the 17th. I know I've got a team of agents here that are very worried, one of whom has a massive group, like 50 people heading on a WestJet flight on uh, May the 17th. So it's really concerning. Uh, It's a tough one to call. The, The parties seem like they're Quite far apart. I would hope that there would be uh, some sort of a resolution before a strike would ever happen, uh, because I can't imagine the pandemonium that would incur should this come to a strike position in basically a week today. So uh, I'm hoping that there's some backroom negotiations and they'll come to the table and that they'll be open minded about this. But for travelers, what this means is you really need to stay up to date on the latest developments of the strike. Keep note of um, of how this is going to uh, unfold because there if that happens you will likely get a refund I mean there's you know experts are weighing in on this my gut tells me that if the airline doesn't fly they will refund people but that doesn't especially ahead of a long weekend it doesn't help you if you were set to go somewhere on a certain date and you had a ticket you got it really cheap and then all of a sudden you know it's it's uh, your flights cancelled and then you have to try and find another airline so look at the other options now as your plan B, and then should the strike happen, book it right away hmm. uh, because everyone will be in that very, very same boat. One piece of news, if you did purchase insurance, I know we sell manual life insurance, but there's a number of different policies out there. I don't know the, the fine print on all of them, but I do know that if you've purchased insurance that includes cancellation and interruption insurance, and you did that before, April the seventeenth, when the strike was actually announced, Manulife will pay for new flights. Oh. So again, one of those situations where if in, you get insurance, and I always say get everything, and you know uh, even if you have medical insurance on a credit card or you have it through uh, your work policy. Uh, inclusive uh, package type insurance that covers you for cancellation and interruption and baggage and all of the other things It's the type of insurance policy I personally have it's called non-medical package because I do have it through work and through my credit card the medical portion um, it just kind of it, it eases your mind and this is where it comes into play
0: All right, so we will be watching uh, to see what happens there in the next few days for sure. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more uh, bigger ties, stronger ties between Air Canada and Virgin Australia.
2: Yeah, so if anyone has been um, planning a trip to Australia, it's on your bucket list, and you are also like an Aeroplan member or you have loyalty points or a a status with Air Canada, this is a great relationship because um, it's been in place since 2017. And what you're able to do is you can book... Uh, a flight to on, say on Air Canada to the, the likes of where they're going, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, but you can do all the internal flights in, in Australia with Virgin Australia, and it can all be on one ticket, which is really nice because what that means is you'll allow, you can connect through that, all of that without having to change, you know, grab your bags and check-in with the other airline. It just, the check-in process is seamless, the boarding is seamless, and the baggage transfer right through the entire journey. So for those who are planning a trip to Australia, that would be something to keep in mind, just to keep things very seamless.
0: All right, so that is some good news. We're also seeing a very busy travel season when it comes to people heading to Europe.
2: Okay, geez. First of all, I thought Europe was busy last year, and it was busy. We saw all of these airports trying to cap the amounts of flights going in and out, and um, struggling because of staff shortages and things. But uh, a study was done by Allianz Partners, and they are expecting Europe, the interest in travel to Europe, to rise 55% this summer. So it's going to be crowded. It's also going to be really hot. Like, I worry because Spain, I think it was... Uh, like a week or 10 days ago hit 38.8 in certain parts and that's only April so I do worry about the heat there so just keep that in mind um last uh, last year London was still kind of the number one place that people were heading to it's still looking like it's the number one for this year uh Paris and Dublin are second and third uh Rome fourth Reykjavik fifth and then it's rounded out in the top 10 by Edinburgh which is Scotland um Athens Amsterdam, Lisbon, and Milan—nice places. Yes, um, but you know, yeah, expect Europe to be a little more crowded and a little more expensive, unfortunately, because of that's a lot of demand.
0: All right, uh, let's come back to this neck of the woods, kind of, and Porter yeah. Airlines and some more services there.
2: Yeah, and this is a service that's just been announced, uh, and it impacts people living here in uh, Vancouver, NBC, because it's a non-stop service between Vancouver and Ottawa. I know a lot of uh, parents who've got kids going to university, and it's way easier for their kids to fly into Ottawa on a nonstop, um, and this will make it a little bit cheaper. So this route will begin on July the 26th, once uh, once daily, and the the flight times are great. Like It leaves at 7.45 in the morning and gets into Ottawa at 4 p.m., and on the return, leaves at 6 p.m., gets back here about 7.40 p.m., so really nice times of the day. The, the other nice thing about it is that Porter, um, with this service, will you'll be able to connect to other places seamlessly, and it just kind of works with their schedule. So places like Charlottetown, uh, Halifax, Moncton, New York City, uh, Toronto, Thunder Bay, and that's all through that nonstop to Ottawa, which makes some of those places a lot easier and more affordable to get to.
0: All right, so that's Porter expanding. And also, if you are flying uh, in Pearson, we've talked a lot about the upgrades in some of the European airports mm-hmm. doing this, but some, uh, some upgrades p- at Pearson as well. Yeah,
2: so uh, you may remember maybe about two weeks ago why VR came out with their, um, the way that they're going to be enhancing just to basically make improvements ahead of the summertime travel rush uh, they uh, they released Vancouver's a couple of weeks ago. Toronto has just unveiled now. There's lots of digital upgrades. Um, they're increasing staff. They're increasing efficiency. They're modernizing um, by investing in technologies. A lot of the these things have already been put in place ahead of the summer rush, uh, but it's just going to mean that they're they're all trying to prevent the chaos that we heard of last summer. I mean, Toronto Pearson was like number one on the worst airports to go through last summer. So they have a lot of room for improvement. And I think that they're putting their money where their mouth is and trying to stay ahead of the summer travel rush, which is good news.
0: All right. Uh, Let's take a look at what's happening in the States as well. Uh, We know that uh, the president is talking about new rules when it comes to airline cancellations. And another big airline in the States also doing a lot of hiring.
2: Yeah, so um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what the U.S. is looking to do. They're proposing new rules for airline cancellations and delays that would put it more in line with what Canada is actually doing. So if you are happening to be traveling within the U.S., and so many of us as Canadians do, they're working on new regulations that will require airlines to compensate passengers and cover their meals and hotel rooms if they're stranded for reasons that are within the airline's control. We already have that in place here. Um, As far as uh, United Airlines, they're actually, they're on a massive hiring. Like it's a super aggressive plan um, just for the immediate concerns that they have, because as you know, many airlines and the whole travel industry is really suffering as far as staff shortages, but they're also planning for years ahead. So, so far United has hired more than 7,000 people this year. So that's since January and they have a target of 15,000 hires and that's across all positions. So it'll be to fill new, it'll be to replace retiring um, and any departing staff. So, and it's all of their, uh, the, the, the jobs that fall under their umbrella uh, with a huge, of course, focus on pilots, 2,300 pilots um, that they're needing. So they've already hired so far about 800 pilots I worry about the uh, how many from WestJet are going over there because the, uh, the U.S. airlines have actually really increased their pay across all of – I mean, and I know it's a different market, but it's not that far to go for more money. It's like why teachers leave certain provinces and go a- across. Um, the number that was thrown out by the, Air- the WestJet Pilots Union was that every 18 hours a pilot is lost to uh, another carrier.
0: Oh Wow, interesting. All Mm -hmm. right, there are so many other stories uh, I know happening in the news, but we also want to get to the deals. So let's get to those deals. Okay,
2: I was going to talk about a seven-night Alaska cruise, which is really good, but I'm going to tell you about one that just landed on my desk, and I'm actually having to read it from my uh, email (laughs) box. So this is a seven-night Pacific Northwest and Alaska cruise. It's sailing round trip from Vancouver for seven nights, and that's kind of the key. It's leaving on September the 26th. I love the itinerary. It's you know Vancouver, Victoria, Astoria, Oregon, and then it heads up to Ketchikan, Alaska, mm-hmm. then goes back down to Seattle, and then ends back in Vancouver. So a really cool itinerary, $3.99. The tax is almost the same at three seventy two. dollars but if you can do it, that's a really, uh, uh, really cool, pretty cheap getaway, especially when things are so expensive at the moment. <laughs> yes. um, the next one I've got is to Kauai. And it's November the 13th through until December the 6th. Now, this was originally a little bit cheaper, I have to say, when I first sent it to you. Um, it, it's still a great deal. It's air and seven nights in a beachfront hotel in Kauai. It's 11.99 and the taxes of 450. dollars um, But keep in mind, I am seeing prices change all the time right now. So if you're hearing one that you can live with, buy it because things are going up so, so fast. Um, The the next one I've got is um, the Costa del Sol region in southern Spain. The, I have to tell you, snowbirds are booking ahead. And so uh, space is limited. There were originally three dates on this. There's now only one left, October the 18th. This is airfare, 20 nights in a suite with kitchenette and the transfers. So including the air in almost three weeks, 1679, the taxes of eight seventy three. They're really high to Europe. Um, the taxes at the moment, but a really good deal if you're a snowbird. Probably the cheapest I'm seeing, including air, at the moment.
0: All right, and you've got one last one. This one's a pretty big one for people as well.
2: I did. But I'm glad we have room for it um, because what I'm seeing is a lot of people who are seeing the prices right now for summer and things and saying, "Wow, it's really expensive." But they're looking at their fall. So the Riviera Maya for fall between November second. And December 14th, so before that you know, spike for the holidays, airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, it's $12.79, the taxes of five twenty. dollars is the cheapest I'm seeing to the Riviera Maya. But like that Kauai deal that I had originally sent to you, it was 200 bucks cheaper. It was originally $9.99 and jumped within just one day to $11.99. So, people are on their fall. So if you are thinking about it, block the time with your big, your employer and and get something on the books.
0: (laughs) All right. That is good advice. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Talk to you next week. We are talking about transit, more specifically transit funding, and this is something that is going to be the focus when the Mayor's Council heads to Ottawa next week to try and fast-track that federal transit funding. Joining the show now to talk a bit more about what this might look like is Linda Buchanan, the Mayor of the City of North Vancouver. Mayor Buchanan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much, Jill, for having me. What specifically is the Mayor's Council going to be asking for?
3: So we're headed off to Ottawa as a delegation and really um, we're kind of looking at, um, we want to kind of three three kind of areas. We have growing pressures uh, in the Metro Vancouver area, we're growing faster than ever and our transit system has not really kept pace. So. We really struggle to keep up with our forecasted population growth um, if we don't act now, given uh, the change in immigration numbers that we're seeing coming um, from Ottawa or from the federal government. And we want to really make sure that we are going to be providing access for everyone across the region. So. Making sure that uh, that we can support growth and affordability and and um, do our part around climate action, so we want to have benefits that are reaching every corner of the region and being able to put our um, the transit services and the public transportation that's needed by by our residents today as well as to the future in all corners of of our community and really look uh, really what we want to talk to them about is re- a renewed federal partnership so really um, not just with us but with the province so we can implement the new transportation plan uh, without delay. So we really want to see that the federal government will um, commit to starting um, the permanent transit fund two years earlier so that we can start delivering uh, better service faster for the people in our region.
0: And how do you make the pitch in a way that, I mean, I'm sure other cities are also hoping for more transit money and would have similar requests to the the federal government. How do you make it in a way that they look at the Metro Vancouver region and agree to it?
3: Well, I think, to your point, I think all... um all major cities uh, across Canada are, are are struggling in terms of ex- expanding their public transportation service. So I think what we're proposing really benefits everybody. So really our pitch, um, which is specific to our region, but at the end of the day, having them, you know, again, commit to perhaps... Or commit to um, giving us the permanent transit funding two years early it will help everyone. So really it's, it's uh, a call to not just our region but across the country that we need to have a more serious conversation and commitment in terms of how we're going to fund expansion across the country and provide the public transportation system that all people need, not just in our region but in other parts of the country.
0: And when you look at the plan that is in place, uh, Transport 2050, uh, as you touched on the the 21 billion dollar plan is that dependent on trips like this and meetings like this and them being successful in getting that funding fast-tracked
3: well it definitely we you know we have 10-year priorities the transport 2050 is a is a long-term plan but we the mayor's council has our 10-year visions and certainly this funding being you know getting this funding fast-tracked in terms of the permanent funding helps us to start delivering the service and expanding it out faster um, than if we had to wait till 2026 when they're proposing to to start implementing it. Um, It's going to be difficult for us to be able to expand beyond what we currently have um, without it. Um, And I think, you know, when we looked at when we started planning for Transport 2050, we had population numbers based at, um, you know, based on what the planning cycle was looking like in 2020 but as we've seen recently uh, from the federal government is a fast tracking in terms of bumping up those immigration numbers and so you know our message is really like any um, you know core service that we have this public transportation is a core service that we need to be delivering to our residents and so we need that commitment for them in order to be able to Technically, connect the dots in terms of welcoming new people into our region, which and to the country which we love to see, but we also need to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place to to support the people.
0: And I would imagine that that's a key argument because on the one hand, like you said, okay, the immigration numbers are being bumped up. There are going to be more people presumably taking advantage of that and coming to Canada. If the federal government is doing that and opening the doors, do they also not have some responsibility to make sure, like you said, that the infrastructure is there and it's available so people can actually get around once they get here?
3: Well, I think short answer would be yes. <laughs> we believe that uh, that is actually a commitment, and we we do have to make sure that, you know, we're we're providing the services that that people need. And again, we welcome people uh, into the region. It's been a, it's absolutely imperative and critical for us to be able to be moving forward as a region and our the economy of of our region and the country. But we do need to have the, the pieces in place that supports that growth. And public transportation is absolutely critical and 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 is why which is why we're we're going to ottawa to to make that case uh,
0: does it go hand in hand though as well with we've talked a lot about housing and i know this is one part of it the the transportation part and the transit part but are there not also concerns that yes these numbers are coming and we're going to see this rapid growth but but and again we need transit but what about how does housing fit into this as well
3: Well, housing is another key piece, so, you know, from my perspective with my mayor hat on housing is absolutely critical to to this piece as well and so if we're again welcoming uh, people into um welcoming people to to canada and to our communities then we need to have core infrastructure and housing is related to transportation and our investment in in the public transportation is along frequent transit corridors where we will be putting you know most of our growth and so they you know land use and transportation planning go hand in hand so it's it's another piece but it's also another critical piece
0: are there certain projects and i know this is part of the longer plan the 10-year plan and and the plan beyond that but are there certain projects i know you've talked about a third crossing linking uh, the the north shore but are there projects that you think are at the top of this list
3: well i think at the end of the day i mean we have we have the 10-year priorities and i think uh this Mayor's Council is very committed to making sure that, you know, uh, some of our larger projects like the Broad Rapid Transit, uh, UBCA, Gondola, etc., Gondola SFU, etc., those are major projects and they take a very, very long time. I think for our uh, Council, we want to, A, start advancing those projects, but we also want to get buses on the ground and buses to every corner of the region so that um, people who are living in all corners of the region are able to get to where they need to go um, at the time when they need to go so um, you know until we see that there is funded committed to it um, right now that's our priority is to a secure funding and then look at how we can expand out the service um, buses and then the major projects that take a, a longer period of time to to plan out and actually get implemented.
0: And I know you touched on this as well as far as the timing, but how big of a difference does it make? So this was a, a permanent transit fund that was announced a couple of years ago in 2021. Uh, the idea, the ask here, is that it be started earlier than planned, that it actually be started next year. How big of a difference, how much of a difference does that make in actual building and expanding of transit?
3: Uh It would be significant. So TransLink has already allocated all of the existing federal infrastructure funding to to current projects. So that with with not receiving any extra funding until 2026, that leaves a three year period um, with no federal funding, which would make it extremely difficult to to to. implement projects. So, you know, it makes sense for us to really, um, you know, we believe it makes sense to accelerate the delivery of the permanent transit funding, So, which is why we're, we're asking for that, you know, starting early in 2024, so we can get to work and we can start to deliver the service that's going to be needed.
0: And uh, when you meet with uh, the federal government, so then is it, I I mean, it probably won't come as a huge surprise to the federal government that that this is what uh, transit or what Metro Vancouver mayors are asking for. Uh, What happens if they say no, we're sticking to the original schedule?
3: Well, then, you know, then we're back to, um, like I said, we, at this point, that federal funding that we've already received has been fully exhausted, and so we're going to then need to go back to the drawing board. I think what we're really looking for is, A, for that commitment, but then also, you know, coming to the table with ourselves and, you know, the provincial government and, and really looking at how do we work collectively on on modernizing Canada's public transportation funding model. It's really outdated, you you know, we really need to have that predictable, permanent funding in place because these this kind of infrastructure that's, that needs to be delivered takes a very long time to plan and actually implement. So to not have uh, sustainable funding makes that really difficult to plan. And so we always find that we're behind the eight ball. And uh, I think we're at a point in time where we need to know that we, we can't really go backwards in terms of doing partial fixes. I think we, we know that we have to do things differently uh, as we build communities and, and look to uh, how we support people here who are here today, but also new people that are coming. And so we absolutely need to modernize how we're funding, delivering and, and getting the services out to, to people who, who deserve to have it.
0: All right. Well, we will wait to and see what the response is to this uh, and with this campaign starting. Mayor Buchanan, thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Jill. And we'll look happy to following. we'll, we'll look forward to following up with you uh, after next week.
0: 135 on this uh, pretty sunny Wednesday afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. So we're going to talk now a little bit about the empty homes tax in Vancouver because the amount of the attack uh, the tax that is the amount of that tax is now up for debate. Something that Vancouver City Council is looking at. And Lisa Dominato is on the line now in ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Dominato, thanks so much for taking some time. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I understand the discussion on this. So this has been underway, but uh, there's a bit of a recess now. So no decision at this point?
4: Correct. Uh, We spent the morning uh, asking questions of staff and and moving a series of amendments and the staff recommendations. And we anticipate concluding this
0: afternoon. All right. So take us back, though, a little bit. Uh, This is the empty homes tax. It was first established back in 2017. So what is up for debate right now?
4: Um, So what's up for debate are are, are two things. One is around retaining uh, the 3% rate uh, that has been in place uh, for the last number of years and continuing that rate uh, on empty homes or homes that are deemed vacant. Uh, And then the other is a number of exemptions. And this is a, a key part of the report, in fact, is about ensuring that the tax is fair. Uh, And that it's effective. And so some of those exemptions include um, if a property owner has applied for a building permit, a development permit, uh, a rezoning inquiry or application, um, that they won't be subject to the empty homes tax because in the past we found that sometimes our permits were delayed and so they were being taxed when they probably shouldn't have. Uh, It also includes an exemption for standing inventory, which is. Brand new built um, uh, homes, uh, for example, condos that haven't uh, haven't been put on the market yet, haven't been sold to an owner, uh, but those should be exempt, and that's uh, in line with what the province does with the speculation tax. And then uh, another example of an exemption is for um, having a second home for if you're using it because you need to be care in the care of medical treatment here in the Lower Mainland. So as you know. Uh, we A lot of our core health services through VGH, Children's Hospital, Cancer Care are in, in Metro Vancouver. And sometimes people need a, a second place to stay when they or a family member are getting care. So those are some examples.
0: Do you think looking at the numbers that are in this report as far as what's happened to uh, the number of empty homes or vacant properties in the city since it was brought in, has this tax done what it was supposed to?
4: I would say on balance, it has. It has been effective in dealing with the the rampant speculation that we saw a number of years ago. But uh, in returning underutilized homes to the market, we've seen a a consistent uh, return to market. There are roughly, on an annual basis, 4,000 exemptions. Um, But in terms of uh, vacant homes last year, it was sitting around the 1,400 mark that were deemed vacant. But that's been going down. And so in that regard, it has been effective.
0: And is, is, how does the enforcement work as far as uh, homeowners, as, as they know, have to fill out a form every year and have to make a declaration if their home is empty or not or occupied? Is there active enforcement checking on those declarations?
4: Uh, There certainly is. Um, uh, We have regular audits on an annual basis. Um, So uh, at least no residents make a declaration. But we've actually increased our audits from from 6,000 to Uh, 18,000. That's quite significant. Uh, And and staff are going to continue doing that. And again, that's just to ensure uh, compliance.
0: All right, and, and going back to the amount, so the amount of the tax when it was brought in, three uh, percent, it was up to it was up to five percent last year, correct?
4: Correct. That was a proposal that was supported. And staff are, what staff are saying is that, um, they recommend we actually stay with 3%. We hadn't implemented 5% yet, uh, largely because I want to continue to monitor, um, and they're doing audits right now for the 2022 vacancy year. Um, uh, but also, uh, one area they identified was the risk of tax evasion. That if you set that tax rate too high, Uh, then you end up having people trying to circumvent and they'll make false declarations. Then you have to do more audits and then you're not getting uh, the revenue that comes from uh, those declared empty homes. So um, based on a a report done by Erson Young, uh, they recommend that we maintain 3% instead of moving to 5%. Another proposal that I, I believe will be supported by council this afternoon is that staff report back on what they call a graduated tax rate. And this would be for longer-term repeat vacant properties that you would have a, a higher rate. And so, for example, we have roughly 162 properties that have been uh, declared vacant uh, consistently since 2017, So between 2017 and 2021. Um, so for the example, some of those might be subject to a higher tax rate and staff will report back on that.
0: So a higher tax rate, if you're somebody that you're, you're just OK with, uh, it w- would appear in a case like that, you're OK with just paying the tax. You have no intention of occupying the home.
4: Exactly. These are the ones that that small number, the 162, I named, mean, are, you know, potentially have been investment properties, speculation. And so they might be subject to a higher tax in future years. But staff are going to report back on on what that could look like.
0: Um, And how would that be different then if, so if if the recommendation then is to stay at 3%, because if you bump it up to 5%, that could lead to more tax evasion. How would it be different then if you're bumping up the tax rate on these other properties?
4: Yeah, well, in the case of of many of the, um, when we've had um, properties deemed vacant, um, usually after the first year or second year, um, often those because of the vacancy tax, those owners are actually motivated then to either sell the property or to rent it long term. But with this small number that we've seen, they're clearly being held. Um, we think it, it may shift that behavior. Right.
0: And I would imagine that that's part of the reasoning behind it, behind the, the, even the idea of bumping it up to 5%, the reasoning being it would be more an, of, an, of an incentive if that tax bill goes up, that maybe if you were considering selling or renting, that would be the, the bit that kind of put you over the edge to make that decision yeah it may
4: um, earth and young did acknowledge that as it might uh, drive uh, people to be you know motivated to rent those long term but they also cautioned and that's where why staff are recommending at this time to not advance five percent to stay at three percent because of the tax evasion component um, uh, and so uh, I think staff are being very reasonable and again uh, a key part of this report was really about dealing with Mm-hmm. Um, addressing public concerns, residents, uh, and and the building community about the, having these appropriate exemptions in place, so that because um, it was never intended to be punitive, it was intended to return housing to the market uh, for long-term homes for people who want to live and work in the city, uh, but not to penalize somebody who is actually living in their home or renting it long-term. Because some people, didn't, we heard a story from a woman today who said her her mother just missed uh, the declaration dates. So that's another one of the components of the report today is that we will extend the declaration deadline. So people who may be declaring in a previous year can still do so.
0: Which makes a lot of sense because I've I've heard that too, that if you do miss the date and you're not doing anything, you're not trying to skirt around the, the rules or anything, but if you just happen to miss the date, apparently it can be a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare to fix that.
4: Uh, absolutely. And it was really common when I was first elected in 2018, because that was the year after it had been implemented, a number of people... Didn't know it had been been put in place, or they were out of town, they were traveling, um, maybe they lived in a different location but rented out their property full time. They didn't get the notice, and so it, it gives people an off ramp to say, "I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I didn't declare. I want to declare. I'll give you the evidence that I either lived in the home or uh, I've had it rented long term." Um, and so that it's just a more flexibility uh, and fairness.
0: Right. You mentioned some of the exemptions as well. Do you think that this is the kind of policy that really should also be open to individual scenarios in that since the tax came in, we have heard uh, from people too, not a lot, but we have heard from people that in some cases, maybe they snowbird in the United States, uh, maybe you're married to an American, it immediately put them in the situation where they were deemed a satellite family, even though the one individual was here living in the home for half the year. And it didn't really fit into any of the boxes. On the form, does it need to be more open to people making their individual cases?
4: Yeah, well, I, I think um, the the current tax does try to address some of those different scenarios through the series of exemptions, and we're increasing the number of them. We did, but we also have an appeal process, uh, and so we did hear from a gentleman today who spoke in council about his experience where he had occupied the home for five months, and his daughter had also occupied it for three months, so a total of eight months. And um, so he appealed and he won that appeal and uh, the funds were returned to him in that instance because that met the threshold of at least six months' occupancy. So I I, I think there is some sensitivity and that's why we built in the appeal process to recognize there are unique circumstances.
0: And where does the money go, the, the money that's collected by the empty homes tax? What is it used for?
4: Um, it is uh, focused primarily on affordable housing initiatives. So the Vancouver Charter actually is very clear that the funds can only be used for affordable housing initiatives, nothing more. It can't go into general revenue. Uh, and so uh, one of the areas that we've focused those resources has been in some grants uh, that have gone to uh, non-market, non-profit housing initiatives. So, for example, we have a, a number of um, uh, some Indigenous-led housing initiatives, uh, some nonprofit housing for seniors, uh, they've applied to that grant program and we've allocated grants and support to, to those uh, housing developments to, to address affordability and, and reduce their over, overall costs.
0: Uh one other thing that I noticed as well in in the Ernst & Young report that you talked about so it and it looked at the the vacant properties and the reduction in that number uh, once this tax had been brought in uh, but I th- I think the report also uh, said that there was the potential that some of those drops may have also been related to the COVID-19 pandemic do do you think those numbers perhaps are skewed by the pandemic yeah it's
4: certainly possible uh, because of the lack of mobility that we had over those couple of years. And, and that's actually um, noted by our staff, is that they want to continue monitoring, complete their 2022 audits. Um, and that's another reason they say for re- retaining the current tax rate, is to see the impact of, of the pandemic.
0: And are you getting the sense then with Council, I know there have been a lot of questions, and like you said, people have been addressing Council on this, that this policy will be approved?
4: Um, I anticipate, based on um, all of the questions and in, in discussion uh, this morning, that the, the staff recommendations will be passed uh, with a few, a few amendments. Um, and so, by and large, they'll be adopted.
0: All right. Councillor Lisa Dominato, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today.
4: Yeah, Thanks a lot, Jill.